Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following round of book reviews are from the March 1997 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, written by Jim Tresner, 33rd Degree, and the title of this round of book reviews is called They Just Shine. My fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Vance, started each day by writing a sentence on the blackboard which she asked us to copy into a special notebook. I lost the notebook long ago, but I remember many of those sentences. One of my favorites is lighthouses neither fire cannon nor ring bells to call attention to the light. They just shine. In keeping with the Masonic Heroes theme of this issue of the Scottish Rite Journal, here are reviews of some books about Masonic Heroes, especially those who, like the lighthouse, just shine. First, The Life and Times of J.S. Murrow, Baptist, Missionary, Confederate Indian Agent, Indian Educator, and the Father of Freemasonry in Indian Territory, by Raymond L. Holcomb. Joseph Murrow, universally called Father Murrow in Oklahoma, is one of the most interesting characters in American Freemasonry. He served as a Southern Baptist missionary in Indian Territory, later the state of Oklahoma, for 70 years. He helped to start more than 100 churches, founded an Indian orphanage, which is still in operation, an Indian school, now Bacone College, and numerous other charities. During the early part of the Civil War, Father Murrow met Albert Pike when Pike was the Confederate Commissioner of Indian Affairs, and the two men became friends. Murrow soon became active in Masonry, teaching the esoteric work and holding schools of instruction. He was responsible for forming the first lodge under a charter from the Grand Lodge of Arkansas in his area. He served as a Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory and founded the first Eastern Star Chapter in what would become Oklahoma. He was also helped to found the Scottish Rite in the OK State. As he traveled in his missionary duties, he carried in his wagon a homemade altar, three chairs, and three wooden candlesticks so that Masonic brethren could set up lodges for the practice of the ritual. The book is a fascinating account of the life of this man who saw the church and the lodge as partners in the betterment of humanity and who compiled an unequaled record of service to both. There are technical limitations in the publication. It is more or less home-published, but the information is excellent and well worth reading. The next book, Freeman and Freemasons, A Masonic Reader, by James W. Bellis, B-E-L-E-S-S. This is a collection of essays about famous Freemasons. Over the past several years, each essay appeared in the Scottish Rite Journal. It is helpful to have them in this convenient format. The essays are short and compact, giving good information in little space, and they make good reading. De Segalier is here, as is Joseph Warren, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, Roscoe Pound, and other brethren. Some of them are known to all of us, others are unsung, but all have interesting stories. The writing style is light and easy to read, and the information and research are first-rate. And then the last one is the Masonic Service Association. The Masonic Service Association has numerous short talk bulletins and digests about famous Masons. These valuable booklets are often overlooked, but they provide interesting information at a rock-bottom price. The following are especially interesting. Please order by number and title. 
Shipping and handling and postage are also included in each price. Also, ask for a free catalog. You'll find many more interesting publications at very reasonable prices. And so he lists several ones that he would recommend, which is Elias Ashmole, Buffalo Bill Cody, Jeremy Ladd Cross, John Hancock, Frank S. Land, Anthony Sayer, Paul Revere, famous American Freemasons, and Masonic membership of General Officers of the Continental Army. And one last thing here, which is not part of the book reviews, it looks like, but it ties in well with this issue being about Scottish or uh, Masonic heroes. Sometimes a man's name lives on. Today's household words named for brothers of yesteryear. Ringling Brothers Circus. All seven brothers were Freemasons. Oldsmobile. Ransom E. Olds was a 33rd degree Mason. J.C. Penney's brother James C. Penny received his 33rd degree in 1945. Pike's Peak, named for brother Zebulon Pike. The Cy Young Award, brother Young joined the Scottish Rite and Shrine. LaGuardia Airport, named for brother Fiorello H. LaGuardia, mayor of New York City during the 1930s and 40s. Hilton Hotels, brother Charles C. Hilton founded his hotel chain in Chicago. Lipton Tea, company founded by brother Thomas J. Lipton. Pullman Sleeping Cars, brother George M. Pullman revolutionized travel. Ford Motors, Henry Ford, 33rd degree, changed the world with his car. Chrysler Corporation, founded by brother Walter P. Chrysler. Colt Firearms, brother Samuel Colt patented his revolver in 1835. Dow Chemicals, Willard H. Dow, 32nd degree, served as president of Dow. Gillette Razors, the Gillette Safety Razor was invented by brother King C. Gillette. Camp Lejeune, named for brother John A. Lejeune, Major General, United States Marine Corps. Stanford University, brother Leland Stanford founded the university in 1885. Maytag Appliances, brother Frederick L. Maytag founded his company in 1907. And the last one is the Mayo Clinic, or Mayo Clinic, the famous clinic co-founded by Charles H. Mayo and began in the Rochester, Minnesota Masonic Temple. And here's another little quick tidbit. If you happen to watch the Netflix documentary about them, uh, it shows how they actually had their practice, I believe it was either in a Masonic Lodge or in the same building as a Masonic Lodge. So a little bit of trivia for you. So thanks, as always, for listening, and have a great day. The following article is from the May-June 2004 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry. A Cluster of Gems by Jim Tresner, Grand Cross. This book review column gathers up some diverse materials, a software program for collectors, a CD with excellent organ music, much of it Masonic, played on the fine instrument at the Detroit Scottish Rite Temple, and two books, one factual and one fictional, about Brother George Washington. Each work is a gem worth using either to organize your collection or to enhance your library. Book Collector at www.book.collectors.com with a Z.com. Book collector software is useful to the avid collector, whether the objects of desire are books or other collectibles. When I depart to have that long-anticipated conference with Albert Pike in the Celestial Lodge above, my home lodge will get my Masonic library, and I've been looking for a simple but useful home library cataloging program which will let my lodge members look up information more easily. I found a good one. Book Collector at www.book.collectorz.com. They have two models, the regular, which costs just under $30, and the Pro, which costs just under $50. Either one is easy to use. 
you can enter everything yourself or you can enter the ISBN. It's on one of the front pages of nearly every book and the program will check the Library of Congress, Barnes and Noble and Amazon listings. If there's a picture of the front cover of the book, it will be added along with the publishing data to your file. Lookup is easy. You can pay for it and download it, or you can download a free trial program for a month. The company also has software for collecting music CDs, comic books, and much more. Nigel Potts, Organists. So mode it be. Transcriptions from the Scottish Rite Cathedral in the Masonic Temple of Detroit. This is an exciting recording. I gleefully admit to being a great fan of pipe organs, and Masonic temples, especially Scottish Rite cathedrals, have some of the finest instruments built in the first third of the 1900s. There is a magnificent Kimball in the Guthrie Scottish Rite Main Auditorium, and I sneak in on some evenings to spend an hour or so at the Keys. There are a couple of great instruments in Scottish Rite temples in Texas, and a small but wonderful organ in the temple in Santa Fe. The instrument for this recording is in the Scottish Rite Cathedral in Detroit. It's a Skinner, built in 1927, the same year as the Guthrie organ. Both instruments have four keyboards, plus the pedal clavier, and both are concert organs, which means they have more stops, which imitate orchestral instruments than do most church organs. They do not, however, have the special effects stops, train whistles, bass drums, etc., which are characteristic of theater organs. Nigel Potts is a young and highly accomplished organist from New Zealand. He is the son and grandson of Masons, although not himself a member of the craft. The program consists of music for orchestra, which is transcribed for the organ. A portion of Brother Mozart's Jupiter Symphony, as well as his Masonic funeral music and portions of the Magic Flute, Wagner's prelude to Act Three of Der Meistersinger, a portion of Brother Hayden's String Quartet in C Major, and Brother Liszt's Le Preludes. It is a powerful collection of music by Masonic composers played on a great Scottish Rite instrument. Janice T. Connell, Faith of Our Founding Father, The Spiritual Journey of George Washington. The historical revisionists have been at it again as of late. They are trying to assure us that religion and faith really were not important to the Founding Fathers. As one said recently on television, after all, most of them were deists, and deists are the same as atheists. Now, deists are not the same as atheists. One believes in God, one doesn't. And while it is true that denominationalism was not important to many of them, faith and religion were. It is clear they believed in human rights derived from God, not from accident of nature. Recall the Constitution's phrasing of all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. So it is good that Connell has made a point of Washington's deep faith in spirituality, The book traces, through Washington's letters and speeches, as well as through observations of his contemporaries, the development of those qualities which gave him strength and determination at Valley Forge, and which prevented power from corrupting him. It is not a heavy book, but it is a rewarding one. Catherine Kurtz, Two Crowns for America Freemasonry and Washington play central roles in this novel set in the days of the American Revolution. The author even notes the book is dedicated to the Brotherhood of Freemasonry under the all-seeing eye whose brethren helped shape America's destiny present at the creation. In particular, Ms. Kurtz focuses on the spiritual forces at work at the time to help shape George Washington's life of service. Ms. Kurtz has done her research, and you will find, for instance, ladies who overhear lodge meetings and many other things taken from the history of our craft. The following book reviews are from the January-February 2004 Scottish Rite Journal. Written by Jim Tresner, Grand Cross. He's been at it again. 
illustrious brother Richard E. Fletcher, secretary of the Masonic Information Center, called again to mention a few more books I really should read. As usual, he was right. Allow me, through the January-February issue book reviews in the journal, to pass on his recommendations. Evan Thomas, John Paul Jones, sailor, hero, father of the American Navy. Evan Thomas has several outstanding biographies to his credit, including the very popular Robert Kennedy, A Life. He has done an outstanding job with the life of Brother John Paul Jones. It can't have been easy. In many ways, Jones is an enigmatic man. We're not sure of his parentage. We're not ever exactly sure what he looked like. There are several portraits of him, but they look as if they could be different men. He was a gifted, prolific letter writer, and most of those letters have survived. His correspondence with such men as Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson gives us unique insights into their lives. A central figure in many naval battles, he was a Freemason and member of Kirkudbright Lodge in Scotland. On May 1, 1780, he was invited to join the Lodge of the Nine Sisters in Paris, easily the most prestigious Masonic Lodge in Europe. As Thomas writes, Populated by philosophies and the progressive fringe of the nobility, the Lodge was a temple to Enlightenment thought. Its members included Voltaire and Ben Franklin. There is more about Freemasonry in the book, and of course, much more about John Paul Jones. It reads like an adventure novel. Indiana Jones had nothing on John Paul. If you enjoy biography, history, the founding of our nation, or just a great story, you'll like this book. Richard E. Rubenstein, Aristotle's Children, How Christians, Muslims, and Jews Rediscovered Ancient Wisdom and Illuminated the Dark Ages. Rubenstein is Professor of Conflict Resolution and Public Affairs at George Mason University, Fairfax, Virginia, near Washington, D.C. This is certainly appropriate since Rubenstein is writing about one of the greatest conflicts of all time, the intellectual explosion that transformed Europe in the Middle Ages. The author follows a set of ideas as they coursed through the West, triggering student riots and heresy trials, prompting Pope Innocent III to recognize the Franciscan and Dominican orders, and setting the stage for today's rift between reason and religion. This new perspective came from Aristotle. Obviously not a book about Freemasonry, it is nevertheless a book about the beginnings of the culture in which Freemasonry arose, and which still echoes in much of our ritual. It is a great and compelling story of the conflict of faith and reason, two valid but seemingly opposing views in the world. That battle continues today. This is history writ large. I could not put down Aristotle's children until the book's last page. Margaret C. Jacob, The Radical Enlightenment, Pantheists, Freemasons, and Republicans. Professor Jacob's earlier book, Living the Enlightenment, simply won't stay in my library. I've bought five copies, but I keep lending it to people to read, and they lend it to others, and I buy another copy. I suspect the same fate will befall this book. The lady is a gifted and powerful writer who makes history almost uncomfortably alive. This new work is, if anything, even more powerful than her first book, where she showed how the traditions of Freemasonry, making our own rules and bylaws, electing our own leaders, not only made us the object of deepest suspicion to church and government alike, but also made us a beacon of hope and information for those seeking freedom. The Radical Enlightenment does that and more. I've always felt that we undersold our Masonic history and tradition as rebels. That line about Masons being peaceable citizens is a recent addition to the ritual. We have much to be proud of in our rebel past. Washington, Franklin, Revere, Warren, and other Masonic heroes of the American Revolution were not exactly pillars of civil conformity. Warren died leading a rebel army, not a parade. 
These men burned with a clear, bright passion for freedom, not security. They were champions of the Enlightenment, that great awakening of mankind to human potential, which swept the world and made it possible for Americans to speak of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as real and reasonable goals. This book chronicles those beginning events in Europe which gave Freemasons a proud heritage of freedom and fighting for it. Try Jacob's book. I bet you'll buy extra copies to give to friends. While you're at it, buy a copy to give to your local public library. Robert Lomas, Freemasonry and the Birth of Modern Science. In the first place, how can you not be enchanted with a book whose chapter titles include The Patron Saint of Frozen Chickens, Gossips, Spies, and French Mistresses, and Life, the Universe, and a Theory of Everything? This is a serious book, and it is well worth reading. The Royal Society was the first organization in the world created to advance and preserve science. Many Masons were involved in its founding and were members over the years, men whose names history has made glorious. It was a dangerous time. Scientists were often accused of witchcraft. Many people thought it was demeaning to God to attempt to understand the way in which his laws worked in the universe. But the same spirit which was manifesting itself politically, as seen in Jacob's book reviewed earlier, also manifested itself in the arts, and especially in the sciences. The insistence upon freedom, which typified the Masons of the age, demanded freedom in all, religion, art, science, and politics. These concepts broke like a tidal wave over society. It was a glorious, heady, dangerous time to be alive, and Lomas captures that spirit very well. Again, it is a book you need to read. It gives us, as Freemasons, a lot of bragging rights. The following book reviews are from the October 1991 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. The title of this series of book reviews is called Hard and Soft Facts by Dr. S. Brent Morris, 33rd degree. The serious student of Freemasonry soon learns that there are many facts about the craft, some hard and some soft. For example, the central prominence of King Solomon's Temple to Masonic symbolism is a hard fact, supported by centuries of verifiable evidence. The participation of the Knights Templar in the creation of Freemasonry is a soft fact, something sometimes stated in the past but mainly developed by fairly recent speculations. This month we present two books that explore these hard and soft facts. Though first published in 1972, the late illustrious Alex Horn's book on King Solomon's Temple stands as a model of careful, meticulous scholarship. While a bit dry in parts, it presents virtually every known fact about the temple as it relates to masonry. If there is a fault in the book, it is the unwillingness of Brother Horn to draw any conclusions without absolutely solid scientific evidence. In contrast, Bagot and Lane, the authors of The Temple and the Lodge, are all too willing to draw conclusions either with or without solid evidence. Their book is well written and engaging, but short on meticulous scholarship. They pursue the again fashionable idea of the survival of the Knights Templar. Other recent books in this vein are John Robinson's Born in Blood and Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum. If it were possible to combine Bagant and Lay's writing ability with Brother Horn's love for hard facts, then we could have a true masterpiece. King Solomon's Temple in the Masonic Tradition by Alex Horn The Masonic story about the building of King Solomon's Temple is one of the most beautiful tales ever told. Imagine good men, skilled craftsmen, pledged to each other by sacred vows, building a temple to God, following a great leader, using the most rudimentary tools and methods, and in the end, creating a be building beautiful beyond compare. There are some hard facts to be considered. 
One, there is simply no indication that Freemasonry, the fraternity close to any form as we now know it today, existed during King Solomon's time. Two, there is no hard, in the sense of archaeological evidence, to substantiate the existence of the original temple. The famous Wailing Wall in Jerusalem may have been related to the foundations of the second, or Zerubbabel's, or third, Herod's temple, built on what was probably the same site as Solomon's original temple, but it cannot be said with any authority that the famous wall is part of the first temple. Failing to find hard physical evidence of Solomon's temple, Horn carefully researches the most ancient of our chronicles, searching for authoritative written accounts of the temple. His search takes him to the oldest Masonic archives, but to no avail. Not to be put off, Horn then carefully researches the not-so-hard evidence, the symbolic use of the building in the Masonic tradition from the winding stairs to the names of the temple's pillars. For brothers interested in this most important of Masonic images, Horn's book will answer questions they never even thought to ask. The next book is The Temple and the Lodge by Michael Begant and Richard Lay. According to the dust jacket for the Temple in the Lodge, the book demonstrates how the bulk of the French knights of the temple escaped to Scotland after their order was crushed by Philip IV of France and the captive Pope Clement V. In Scotland, the jacket continues, the Templar heritage took root and was perpetuated by noble families. The book is supposed to explain the birth of Freemasonry as the survival of Templar traditions modified by currents of European thought. However, the reader who expects to find Templars wearing aprons and conferring the three degrees, or Masons in chainmail armor, will be disappointed. If this is your expectation, read first, page 137. Quote, if there was a connection between the Templars and the guilds of operative stonemasons in Scotland, it would in any case have exhausted itself by the 15th century. End quote. In spite of the foregoing, the book is recommended as an excellent mixture of speculation and fact, romance and reality. Although these disparate elements are usually self-evident in most books, such is not always the case here. Watch out for unwarranted assumptions. One example of the author's speculations starts by referring to a medieval estimate that numbered the Templars about 20,000. Since less than 300 were imprisoned in France, the authors reason that many Templars escaped the mendacity of Philip IV. Many of these, they further guess, escaped to Scotland and joined the forces of Robert the Bruce, where they helped defeat the English at Bannockburn. Caveat lector, let the reader beware. No historical evidence supports this fancy. The book states the essential facts of Templar history, adds elaborate speculation about the Templars in Scotland, then picks up the threads in Scotland and England of early speculative masonry. Finally, Bagant and Lay describe the role of Masons and Masonic ideals in shaping the destiny of the emergent United States of America. Yet, if I understand the authors, they do not establish a clear transition from the order of the Temple to our ancient and honorable fraternity, nor am I certain they intended to. The reader must plug one into the other by his own devices. This constitutes a leap of considerable faith. The Temple in the Lodge is a major compendium of fact and fancy, thoroughly enjoyable both to the mason who picks it up for entertainment and to the historian or researcher. It reminds us of our dependence upon the past, especially upon the Scots. The following book reviews are from the February 1997 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA, written by Jim Tresner, 33rd Degree, and the title of this section of book reviews is called The Mystery of History. The mystery of history can be made a lot less mysterious with the proper resources. Not surprisingly, given the nature of our gentle craft, many Masons are interested in history. 
For some, the interest comes as part of the research they are doing into the development of the fraternity. For others, it's simply love of a good story, and history contains some of the best around. For yet others, it's a part of understanding who they are and how they fit into the world. Whatever the source of your interest, you'll find the following helpful. House Reunited by Alan E. Roberts For many Masons, all they need to know about a book to want to add it to their library is that Alan Roberts wrote it. One of the most prolific contemporary Masonic authors, Brother Roberts has added significantly to the sum of Masonic knowledge. This little book picks up where his famous book about Masonry in the Civil War, A House Undivided, leaves off. The Civil War is over. Masons and non-Masons alike are trying to regain some sense of order in their lives, and Masonry is there to help. He retells the fraternal help given by each side to the other after the struggle. He recounts the heartbreaking efforts of brother and President Andrew Johnson to bring the nation together on some basis other than bitter revenge and to avoid the horrors of Reconstruction. The book reads easily and quickly, and it gives a good snapshot of the war's aftermath, an era all too often glossed over in textbooks. You'll want to add this book to your library. Freemasons at Gettysburg by Sheldon Munn This book was inspired by the Friend of Friends statue at Gettysburg. For Masons with a special interest in that most uncivil of wars, Freemasons at Gettysburg provides a fascinating sidelight on the battle. For those who enjoy stories about real people and how they use the spirit of Masonry to overcome the passions which try to separate brother from brother, the book can be an inspiration. Munn documents the more than 50 Masons who were present at the Battle of Gettysburg and provides stories of how the Masonic beliefs of the participants interacted with the great battle of the Civil War. If a book set in a battle can be said to make the reader feel good, this one does. A History of the Supreme Council, 33rd Degree, of the Ancient Accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry for the Northern Masonic Jurisdiction of the United States of America by George Adelbert Newbery. Both the Northern and the Southern jurisdictions of the Scottish Rite have full and rich histories. A new one-volume book is in preparation on the history of the Southern jurisdiction by Dr. William Fox, 33rd Degree, Grand Historian and Grand Archivist of the House of the Temple, and, as one who has been privileged to take an advanced look at the text, I can tell you it will be terrific. This book, A History of the Northern Jurisdiction, written in 1987 and revised in 1996, makes fascinating reading as well. There is an interesting and valuable sketch of the origins of the Scottish Rite, but the gripping part of the book deals with the men, primarily sovereign grand commanders, who struggled to establish the Rite in the Northern Jurisdiction and helped to develop it into a powerful and thriving institution. We watch through the eyes of the historian as they rise to challenge after challenge, including the serious threat of the Serenau movement, which appeared to jeopardize legitimate Scottish Rite masonry for the time. The book chronicles the successful struggle to remain relevant in a changing world, as well as the creation of new philanthropies and outreach activities. The information about the creation of the Northern Light, the Northern Jurisdiction's equivalent of the Scottish Rite Journal, and especially about the creation and growth of a museum of our national heritage, makes for truly good reading. For those interested in the totality of the Scottish Rite in America, or in the growth and spread of the Rite in its early years, this book is highly recommended. And then the last one is Not Out of Africa by Mary Lefkowitz. This book makes me very, very angry. Not the book itself, which is excellent and thoughtful, but the intolerance and persecution which forced it to be written. Dr. Lefkowitz is one of the most outstanding classical scholars in the United States. Her knowledge of the Greek and Roman period simply is not open to question, 
but she has been forced to watch as even at universities, visiting lecturers have made a series of statements claiming that Greek culture was stolen from Africa. This simply is not true. When in question sessions she dared to ask lecturers what the source of their proof might be, a standard question in such situations, whether the topic under discussion is atomic theory, history, literature, or anything else, she was denounced as a racist for even asking the question. Anytime a person is attacked for seeking truth, Masons should care. But Masonry comes into the book another way as well, and makes for even more interesting reading. Lefkowitz suggests that some branches of Masonry may have unintentionally contributed to the current fad for Afrocentrism which she exposes. Masonry, especially in the 1700s and 1800s, placed a great deal of importance on Egypt as a source of knowledge and civilization. In all likelihood, our early brethren were using the Egyptian origins as a teaching myth, not as a literal truth. Mythology and symbolism were better understood by the entire culture in earlier periods, and in masonry, as in many other areas, writers seldom felt it necessary to state they were dealing with math or symbolism. But those myths, taken literally, appear to have formed the basis for what might charitably be called a misunderstanding of the origins of the classical culture from which the most of Western civilization derives. It is a painful irony indeed if masonry, so completely the champion of the search for truth, no matter where it leads, should have become an unwitting source for racial intolerance and intellectual dishonesty. The book reads easily and well. Lefkowitz rises above any temptation to attack her attackers and simply states the facts of history as they are known and verified. The information she presents about masonry is far from complete, necessarily, of course, in such a popular work. Yet there is much here for the student of Masonic history and even more for those who value intellectual integrity and honesty. If we are not warned against the current excuse to teach myth as history, it is not the fault of this courageous scholar. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.